Welcome back to the most accurate podcast here at 444 Football. As always, I'm your host, John Daigle, fresh off an exciting regular season opening week. And joining me as always, none other than the man who is now pulling himself out of the rankings and projections cave. It is John Paulson. Paulson, how are you hanging on after week one? Uh, not a not a terrible week one. It was uh, some wild stuff happening, but uh, got back into the the flow of things and got the rankings out yesterday. Uh, I'm also doing uh, rest of season rankings front to back, which is the first time I'm doing it the whole thing. So that was a little bit of a, an experience yesterday, but those are up as well. So you can uh, find your uh, waiver wire pickups uh, there. And joining us as he will every single week for this special usage show and preview a look ahead episode every single week, Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern for those watching live. None other than Sam Hoppin. Hoppin, I know you have charts and other notes ready to go for us today as well. I do. Fortunately, uh, every single data provider changed uh, how they format their data over the offseason, so got to deal with a lot of fun mismatching data. But we are all set to go now. We're ready to rock. That is a complaint that maybe one person feels sorry for. Oh, yeah. No one else gives a damn about that complaint when they're listening on the podcast. And because of that, Sam, I want to get right into the usage because everyone is curious about buy high, sell lows. Everyone wants us to overreact and react accordingly to week one. And I want to start, gentlemen, with the 49ers running backs because we know if you look at any waiver wire column, even though you should read the one in particular on 4 for 4, Everyone who wrote a waiver wire column had to go to Google search and look up an image of Jeff Wilson. He's the cover boy no matter where you go for week one waiver pickups. And Paulson, I want to start with you on your outlook for Wilson, who, as we know right now, Elijah Mitchell is on IR, expected to be out reportedly two months. Remember, San Francisco's bye week is in week nine, so we are expecting Jeff Wilson to be the starter, barring injury, until week 10. And what we saw once Elijah Mitchell left the game was 11 carries for Trey Lance, 10 carries, including all 11 running back touches for Jeff Wilson, and six carries for Debo Samuel. Your thoughts on this backfield moving forward? Yeah, he's certainly the uh, the running back pickup of the week, uh, probably the pickup of the week. And I've got him projected for sixteen point five carries, uh, about two catches. He's not a huge, re- you know, receiver there in that in that offense. Um, I think what we'll probably see though is Debo's rushing numbers, get, you know, get a little higher than what we would have seen if it was Elijah Mitchell back there. He'll probably be the RB two. Uh, effectively. So I would come out of this feeling really good about having Debo on my roster. I think he's going to really have a good stretch here with Elijah Mitchell out. Uh, But Wilson is the big winner. He's going from the RB2 to RB1 uh, situation, and he's obviously going to have a certain number of touches every week, and it's a pretty good matchup this week against Seattle. So I've got him ranked as a low-end RB2. Any additional thoughts, Sam, on the 49ers offense, the big-picture takeaway from them? Because I actually came away with Debo Samuel – Maybe not as a buy high, since we still have to see George Kittle work into this offense. But remember, when Samuel was used as a wide back in the second half of the season last year, he was averaging less than five targets per game. But to still see those wide back carries and see eight targets and an ambiguous target tree, we all thought that, oh, it's wide open. It could be Brandon Ayuk. It could be George Kittle. Also, what if the answer to an ambiguous outlook is just Debo Samuel, right? So now we're getting targets and carries. In the short term, without George Kittle, if those carry over, I want to be extremely high on Debo Samuel moving forward. But your thoughts on the 49ers offense? 
I would agree. And it's, it is difficult to take a ton away from this game because it was a monsoon here in Chicago. They didn't have Kittle and they had Trey Lance when, uh, excuse me, Jimmy Garoppolo was starting all of last year. So I think a lot of people, you know, fading Debo in the offseason were expecting Lance to get more of the rushing, rushing usage and potentially take that away from Debo so that San Francisco could keep him healthy throughout the year. Now, that probably changed when Elijah Mitchell went down and they didn't really have anyone else other than Jeff Wilson. And the fact that Jordan Mason and Tyrion Davis Price were basically no show were no shows in in this game makes it a little bit confusing. So I I, I lean yes the that Debo is probably a buy high because it's it looks like his usage is not going to change that much regardless of the situation. And with Jordan Mason and Tyrion Davis Price, fine minimum waiver pickups, but I also think people are overreacting and thinking that's where these touches go. These touches do not go there. They go to Jeff Wilson. And remember, this is also a different offense than last year. We've now seen Trey Lance have 12, 12, and 13 carries and his three career starts for the Niners. So it's actually quite log jammed, which is what makes me think that Wilson will have fewer than the 18 carries per game. Mitchell averaged in the 12 starts he completed last year, but also we still expect him to get 15-plus touches, which is why, Paulson, you have him ranked as your running back 26, a RB2 weekly for the time being. I also, Paulson, want to talk about the Chargers' wide receivers. Our own injury doctor, Adam Hutchinson, projects Keenan Allen to return in Week 5. So with this soft tissue hamstring injury, we already are under the assumption he won't play in the short turnaround, an amazing matchup against the Chiefs in week two on Thursday night. And then we think we could also get Josh Palmer, DeAndre Carter, Gerald Everett for this opportunity that's now vacated for a handful of games, not just on Thursday. So how are you playing out this situation? Yeah, and it was this week, or this last week, it was really Carter that was the one that emerged uh with with Allen sidelined he ended up with three for 64 and a touchdown on four targets Palmer had four targets as well caught three for just five yards and then at the tight end position uh we also had Par Donald Parnum was out so I was a little bit bullish on Gerald Everett already uh and then now with Al Allen out Everett looks like a, a pretty good streamer uh threat for low end tight end one numbers every week. He had three for 54 and a touchdown on four targets, but this was a, and then also you have Mike Williams, two for 10 on four targets. So this was nobody on this team got more than four targets. And there was like <laughs> six of them, seven of them that got four targets. It was a weird, kind of a weird target distribution for Justin Herbert, but he really spread the ball around. And for that reason, I wonder if anybody's going to be really reliable. I would think that Mike Williams would have to get more usage after his season last year and the, the contract that he's got. And, uh, you know, Palmer was the preseason darling, uh, looked good. He's got some good quickness and uh, good athleticism. Um, but weirdly, it was Carter, you know, that's kind of stepped into the uh, Allen role. So um, I think you really, if you're, if you're starting call, uh, Carter or Palmer, you're sort of doing so on hope. Uh, Palmer, we have a little bit of, more um maybe trust or faith in because of the preseason and kind of things the way things were trending um but i think mike williams is kind of a must start now uh not that he wasn't before but 
with Allen out, I would think he's a must start. And I think Everett is looking like a pretty good streamer at tight end. Palmer also still 75% of snaps. And although, as you mentioned, DeAndre Carter out-targeted him 4-2 to two once Keenan Allen left the field in week one, Palmer still, we recall, his lone start in place of Keenan Allen last year when he had a 22.5% target share and recorded 5.66 and 1 through the air receiving. Sam, is there any hope for a bounce back here for Mike Williams? We know the highest target share on the Chargers as they came out spreading the ball out was 11.5%. We think Mike Williams does still have an extremely high ceiling, especially without Keenan Allen. But are there any usage notes you may have that project for that in, on Thursday? So Keenan, or excuse me, Mike Williams ran a route on 86% of the team's dropbacks. No other receiver was above 70%. Now maybe that changes if Allen stays healthy for the entire game. So he's on the field when they're passing the ball, which is the big part of it without Keenan Allen. I think he'll definitely get more run. The interesting thing was Mike Williams only had 14 air yards in this game. So at a 3.5 average depth of target, which is not what we typically expect from Mike Williams. We you know, sort of see him as that deep threat, but it could be that his profile is changing and, and does change with Keenan Allen, their possession receiver out. I'm, I lean with Paulson here that Mike Williams is a must start. If you're really desperate in deep leagues, I would start Palmer over Carter. Carter did see the one end zone target that Herbert threw and caught it for a touchdown, but Palmer uh, was the second highest on the team in terms of receivers in routes run at 25. So Mike Williams and then a very big tier, and then Palmer, and then Carter for me. And it may not be as safe as playing Jeff Wilson, but if you ask me in a vacuum who I would flex, I would still chase the ceiling of Josh Palmer permanently in this matchup that is combined for over 50 points the last three times the Chiefs and Chargers have played one another. Paulson, another conundrum that happened on waiver wires is what to do with Rex Burkhead. What we know on Wednesday is that Lovey Smith came out and said, we need to get Damian Pierce more touches. That's what we need to do, which is oddly on him. And what we saw in week one was Rex Burkhead befuddlingly running 29 routes to Pierce's five and out snapping Pierce 11 to one on third and fourth down. What are you doing with Rex Burkhead and Damian Pierce, both in the short and long term? Well, I did I did notice in the preseason, uh, and I don't remember who the beat writer was, but they were saying that I think people he was saying that I, I think people are just misunderstanding the level of faith the team has in Rex Burkhead. And it's just like this irrational love and faith for him uh, within the organization. So the fact that they're coming out and saying that we need to get Pierce more touches is a little bit of a departure from that. I mean, I think the, the beat writer was suggesting that Pierce's workload just wasn't going to be there as what we were expecting. I mean, he was going earlier and earlier in drafts and I saw him go in the third or fourth round and it, it was kind of befuddling to me uh, for a number of reasons but um, and Burkhead was one of them but I don't think that his passing game role just goes away Burkhead he's a good receiving back he's always been a good receiving back I think the argument might be okay why is he getting 14 carries and Pierce is getting 11 that should be flipped or even you know more like a 15 for 15 to 17 for Pierce and maybe a seven or eight for Burkhead. And that's maybe the, what their goal ultimate goal will be. Um, but right now I, I don't have any faith in starting Pierce. I got to see 
a, a significant uh, workload here. And like, it's, words don't really matter <laughs> at this point when, when Burkhead sees 19 touches last week in a game that they were leading most of the way. Uh, that's a game that sets up for Pierce to see a lot of carries. Uh, you would expect this sort of workload from Burkhead in a game that they're trailing all the time, which is what they're likely going to be doing most of the season. So um, I'm, I, you know, I have them, I moved Pierce down and rest of the season, uh, but still holding a candle out for him or lighting a candle for him and holding on to him, uh, hoping to see some, uh, a turnaround in terms of his touches. I am holding Pierce as well, Sam. Is this a situation where you would sell if someone is offering a lucrative package, even though I don't think that's happening after his usage from week one? Or what are you doing right now with this backfield yourself? I'm also holding Damian Pierce. He only played 20 snaps, but he did get 12 total opportunities in the game. So that's a pretty high share of, you know, I guess, uh, ratio of opportunities to snap. So if his snap share rises, I would expect his opportunities to rise with it. Rex Burkhead is clearly the passing back. I think we sort of knew that entering the season. He played on 87.5% of the team's third down snaps in the game on, excuse me, on Sunday. And like Paulson pointed out, it was a game script that set up for Damian Pierce. They're supposed leading rusher. So I'm holding Pierce. I'm also adding Burkhead because I do think the Texans play in a lot more negative game scripts and keeps him involved in the passing game. I want to kick it back to you, Paulson, for your thoughts on Daryl Henderson and what we saw on Thursday night. There were rumblings behind the scenes that Sean McVay had soured on Cam Akers before the game. And then what we saw suggests that Daryl Henderson is a touch-based RB1, low-end RB1, fringe RB1, for as long as he is healthy. And I have question marks about that last caveat, but your thoughts on Daryl Henderson right now for everyone who is the RB16 in your Week 2 rankings. Yeah, and he, uh, when I originally originally ran the rankings and uh, projections and kind of assigned him RB1 touches, he came in in the top six. Uh, So there's a lot of upside here with him. And there's also a little bit of danger if they decide they want to go back to cam Akers. cam Akers didn't do anything in the game to indicate that he needed more touches. I mean, he carried the ball three times for zero yards. Didn't see a target. Uh, he played 18% of the snaps. Uh, Daryl Henderson played 82% of the snaps. So if I have Daryl Henderson right now, I'm very likely starting him. Uh, it, looks like he is the the clear RB1 right now in that offense. And I think it's going to take a lot of work for Akers to sort of get that uh, any sort of significant usage back uh, unless he starts to show something in practice that we're not privy to. Um, this was, I mean, I think we came in, I think we all came in thinking with the what McVeigh said that we have an RB1A and 1-2, we have two starters, blah, 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 that we were going to see some sort of every other series rotation between these two. And what we saw instead was bell cow usage for uh, Daryl Henderson, who we know from last year delivers like low end RB one numbers when he's the bell cow in this offense. So um, I would confidently start him. I would look at, look for him in DFS. I think it's a, uh, he's a, he's a strong, strong start this week. You say acres did nothing, but he blew a pass block. He got in there and uh, pissed McVay off more, so he certainly got in there. But 
we know that staying healthy is a skill, and that's why I hold Acres just as a contingency option, strictly as a stash option, because we know that skill and staying healthy is not what Henderson has ever shown us going back to Memphis since he's battled chronic angle injury in, in that time. So what are you doing right now with Henderson, with Acres, yourself, Sam? I'm, I, I hate to keep agreeing, but I, I, I'm agreeing here. Henderson was one of six running backs who played on every one of their teams, Renzo and snaps in week one, he played on all six of them. So the fact that he's getting usage that close to the goal line as well is massive. I do think to your point, Daigle, Akers is worth holding on as bad as he was. Henderson has deal, dealt with injuries in the past. So there is an opportunity that if Henderson gets hurt, they don't really have anyone else to give touches to. So it, it, he's a hold for me. If you need the roster spot, I don't think holding on to acres is something you necessarily need to do, but if you have the, the bench space for sure, hold on to him and Harold Daryl Henderson, especially against the Falcons defense this week is a smash start for me. I would confidently start him over Jeff Wilson if someone has that decision that is listening. I'm also going to put the onus on you, Sam, to explain what happened with Allen Robinson and how people should be feeling right now heading into week two. He is Paulson's, for reference, wide receiver 32 ahead of Sunday. I mean, that's that was one of the biggest questions coming out of week one, uh, especially out of Thursday night. And... It was super confusing. He did run a route on 98% of dropbacks. So that's, I think, what a lot of Allen Robinson managers are holding on to right now. He only got the two targets, but that Bills defense was so good. They were shutting down, you know, almost everything aside from Cooper Cup. And the fact that, you know, it was at the very end of the game, but Robinson did get an end zone target as well. So He's someone, again, against a, a very bad Falcons defense, if you're in a pinch, is probably more of a flex option right now than a wide receiver too. So you might have better options available, but he's not someone I'm dropping by any means. The Rams are one of the past happiest teams in the NFL, and Matthew Stafford is for sure the best quarterback that Robinson has played with in his career. So I think Robinson could be a buy low opportunity. And if someone drafted him in the third, fourth round, the the cost might not be as high as you might think. My only concern for the short-term Paulson would be that Robinson played 75% of his snaps from the boundary. And AJ Terrell, just going back to week one, logged 80% of his routes from the boundary. Terrell, of course, who allowed a league low among all starting cornerbacks last year and yards per catch. Now, Terrell got spiked for two touchdowns on Michael Thomas, but we're also questioning if Allen Robinson has it in his bag to still have the profile, have the explosiveness that Michael Thomas, he showed he has. So what are your thoughts on the Rams passing attack moving forward? Uh, I think – it's not hugely surprising that he struggled against the bills. I mean, the bills are really good defense. I, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I assume they played a lot of zone and that Cooper cup tends to really, really eat against zone uh, looking at uh, reception perception. Uh, Alan Robinson's in the red against zone. He's 75%, but not as high as a lot of the, it's not even average in terms of his success rate versus zone. So first game with uh, Matthew Stafford, um, 
certainly alarming when you're, you know, looking at him as a drafted as a wide receiver too, uh, you know, going in the fourth round, sometimes the late third that you're getting this sort of week one production from him. Um, I might bench him if I have a better option, but I'm certainly not cutting him at this point. Uh, I do think that if you are a believer and, you know, Matt Harmon certainly is, he looked, he charted Robinson last year and thought that a change of scenery will do him good. He still got it. Uh, and this is a offense. And the reason we were drafting him, you know, in the fourth round, this is an offense that saw really good production out of the W uh, wide receiver two spot um, last year uh, with Robert Woods uh, and Odell Beckham, both producing fantasy wide receiver two numbers in that role. So I think he's going to have a bounce back. I don't know if it'll be this week. I'm hoping for him and his uh, managers uh, have him rostered, but um, it's certainly a better, it's setting up as a better situation against Atlanta than it was against Buffalo. And uh, I think, you know, they look at, you know, all I heard out of the the preseason was how much Sean McVay loved Allen Robinson. He was apparently turning on tape for people just unsolicited nobody's even asking about him he's like here's i got this alan robinson got tape i want to show you uh so apparently they really love him uh so i think they probably come out of that game knowing that they got to get more out of him and uh i would expect that to start in week two i don't have him ranked terribly high this week because i kind of i'm kind of in a wait and see mode with him there's some other players that you know christian kirk julio jones uh darnell mooney against the packers uh who i know is going to see a lot of targets Uh, i feel a little more comfortable uh, starting them uh, over Allen Robinson this week, but it's not a it's not a bad matchup. Uh, but as you mentioned, the perimeter uh, cornerbacks for the Falcons are actually pretty good. Paulson gave some examples, Sam, but I'm curious your thoughts. If Keenan Allen was scratched, was ruled out for Thursday, would you start Josh Palmer or Allen Robinson? Because some people have to make that decision. That's really and it's tough very one. close. It's very close in the it, rankings, by the way. It it's extremely close. I. I probably lean Robinson. I think there are other potential outlets or more potential outlets in the Chargers offense, whether it's DeAndre Carter or Gerald Everett, Austin Eckler as well, than there might be in the Rams offense outside of Cooper Cup. So it it is extremely close, but I'm going to go Robinson here. Everyone who is listening, is curious what to do with this Cowboys offense after Dak Prescott was ruled out for at least four weeks. Jerry Jones, ever the optimist he is, seems like he'll return him. And then I start worrying if Dak Prescott is just Russell Wilson in the second half of last year, which is what I think would happen. But for me, I look at this offense, no Zach Martin heading into the season. Tyron Smith lost for at least four months during the preseason. Left guard, Connor McGovern, who was only playing there because the Cowboys have a developmental rookie left tackle removed with an injury on the first drive of Sunday night against the Bucks. Now they have sophomore seventh rounder Matt Barnyak, who struggled during the preseason starting for them and Cooper Rush who stepped in immediately for Dak Prescott of course pressured on 35% of his dropbacks to close the game and ate the third highest sack rate of any quarterback in week one because he's a backup quarterback playing behind a third string offensive line. My argument now is that this is a college offense. Like this team is an absolute disaster. And that's why I don't have, that's why I think Michael Gallup in very shallow leagues. There are people in 10 team leagues, shallow benches. I think Michael Gallup can be dropped. Right now, the report is Michael Gallup is just getting involved, perhaps in team drills midweek, may not even play in week two. And so 
Lamb, in my opinion, is a player who I would look to trade to anyone who lazily thinks it's an overreaction because of his 11 targets. When I would argue those 11 targets were inefficient and will only get worse with Cooper Rush in a third-string offensive line. Sam, what are you doing with the Cowboys offense? Are you buy, buying high, selling low with any of these players in particular? That's a... That's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, you could point to the 11 targets that he had. He only had two catches, which is, I mean, just a, a terrible rate. I'm I'm writing up my Hop Into Conclusions article. Quick, quick plug there will be out later today. But one of the primary benefits of the Cowboys offense is how quickly that they play. They run a play every 27.7 seconds in neutral script situations. But in the one game that they played without Dak last year, that dropped nearly five seconds to 32.2 seconds per play. So the team just gets very sluggish without Dak Prescott under center. I do think if you have Lamb, you can start him because he is the alpha in that offense. I think, you know, even though Cooper Rush is throwing, there's he's going to, I think, catch more than two balls if he gets 11 targets again. But Outside of that, I mean, if you drafted Zeke, you likely have to start him. But I don't know if there's really anyone else in this offense that I want to be touching if Dak isn't going to be playing for a stretch of time. So if you can sell high on them, I think that is an opportunity that you should take advantage of. Because while Jerry Jones thinks that Dak is going to return in five or six weeks, Schefter is reporting that it could be closer to eight. and we know when when Russell Wilson came back from his hand injury last year, he just did not look the same. Paulson, you have C.D. Lamb. You've already taken a stand, ranked as your wide receiver 25, thus a wide receiver 3, fringe wide receiver 2. Your thoughts on this offense in the short term and what you're doing in leagues. Are you trading? Are you standing? Well, it sounds like uh, Dak isn't going to be out that long, maybe as long as we were originally thinking. Uh I'm seeing four to six weeks. Um, So, and then you have to look at Cooper Rush as a fill-in and how bad is it? (laughs) Um, And I think for a a player like CeeDee Lamb, it's not, it's taking him from a wide receiver one type player to a wide receiver two slash three type player. So he's not somebody, he's probably somebody you're still going to start because he's going to see the targets and the usage. And the question is, you know, you alluded to it, the, Actually, you discussed it. The offensive line, uh, how bad is it going to be? He was they were sacked four times against the Bucks. On one hand, I sort of give the the Dallas offense a little bit of a pass against the Bucks. They have one of the best defenses in the league. They're they're not going to play the Bucks every week. Um, so you know, specifically this week, the Bengals not as good uh, as a de- of a defense. And then just looking at Cooper Rush. In the last two seasons, he's appeared in five games. He's completed 37 of 60 passes for 62%, 61.7% for 486 yards, three touchdowns, one interception, uh, averaging 8.1 yards per attempt, which is very good. Uh, and his favorite targets were Mari Cooper with 13, Lamb with 10, Schultz with 9, and Ezekiel Elliott with 7. So just wanted to mention those numbers. Um, if he can come in and be decent, we can get through this stretch with Lamb as, you know, hopefully the, you have some depth that, at receiver and can, you know, bench him in bad matchups or something if you need to, but you're probably still going to start him. He's probably still going to see nine, 10 plus targets. 
And I don't think Rush is a complete disaster at quarterback. I think the question is, can they protect him? And um, that offensive line is probably the big the big issue right now. Can they protect him when he has the white in his eyes when he looks up and it's Dennis Houston as his wide receiver too, as opposed to last year, everyone cites that spot start he had against Minnesota when it was Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, and CeeDee Lamb. Completely different offense with the first string offensive line. This is not that same unit. That is my big argument and big takeaway. Uh, an NFL offense should be able to reach the team's opposing 30-yard line. The Cowboys couldn't do that in week one. It's an absolute disaster. I also, Paulson, want to ask you about the seventh circle of hell and Taysom Hill because he is throwing off projections because no one has ever had to project for a tight end who rushes for yards, a tight end who takes snaps under center inside the 10-yard line. Um, it is a very confusing situation. As I wrote in my waiver column, it's person to person. It's case by case. We can't even answer if you should start Taysom Hill over X player because that comes down to your own risk averseness. You have to look at your third eye, turn it inward, and say, what kind of human being am I in this life? And so that's why it's really hard to discuss Taysom Hill. But I know you have a few stats you want to discuss about Hill. Yeah, so this is a, obviously a common question this week. Uh, we have a little bit of an issue at 444 because we have never had to project rush yards for a tight end. I think we had one issue pop up, and it was Aaron Hernandez years ago, and he's since, uh, <laughs> since gone. Right. Yeah. Uh, sorry to laugh about that, but it was a long time ago was, was the joke there. Uh, so... Um, I'm meeting with Josh to try to figure out like a short-term solution or some, some sort of solution for Taysom Hill. It wasn't so bad when he was quarterback because we could project rush, rush yards for quarterback, but he's no longer listed as a quarterback. So um, I pulled the 17 games that Hill's snap percentage was within 5% either way of the 26% that he played in week one. So I'm looking at a range of 21 to 31%, assuming that the Saints want to continue to use them in the way that they've used them in week one. Um in those games, he averaged 3.7 touches for 27.89 yards and 0.41 touchdowns. That's, you know, rushing and receiving. Uh, and half PPR, that equates to about six points per game, uh, which would have made him the tight end 24 last year. So that's what you're sort of looking at with this sort of playing time on average. Obviously, the everybody's talking about this because he had 80 yards rushing, ripped off a long uh, rush, 50-something yarder. And he had a touchdown. So everybody's like, how can I, you know, work Taysom Hill into my lineup as a tight end? Is he going to break the tight end position? Probably not. I mean, I think if you if you look at those range of games, he averaged seven yards per carry in those games. So that's good. And he, you know, he saw three carries per game in those games. He, he saw four in week one. So if they let's say they do the same thing and they run them four times, uh, you know, you're looking at probably 28 rushing yards are about there and maybe 0.32 rushing touchdowns. If they bring him in around the goal line, that would equate to roughly 6.9 points per game. And those are mid range tight end two numbers. So that's how I would sort of value, you know, value him right now in between the mid range tight end two to low end tight end two, you're going to have some good games and you're going to have some really bad games. If he, you know, comes in and rushes twice for four yards and is only running, I think he ran three routes, uh, got, targeted four. once don't take away one of his four routes it was four oh, four routes okay yeah. so like they're not using him as you know as a runner and then also using him as a tight end like a primary tight end 
Juwan Johnson ran 33 routes. So I would expect more consistent production from Johnson, which was kind of a surprise. I think we were looking at Adam Troutman perhaps, you know, with half those routes, but they really like, looks like they really like Juwan Johnson as their primary tight end receiving. So what I'm getting at is you might get this kind of game where you get a 50, 60 yard in rushing plus a touchdown out of Taysom Hill, but you might have some really bad games from him as well. He only scored 8.2 fantasy points or higher, which is the threshold I use for tight end one numbers, starting tight end numbers in six of the 17 games. So you're really in a one to three, one out of three situation. And this with these sort of snaps and this sort of usage of getting tight end one numbers out of him. So I think most, most uh, fantasy managers want more consistency, Um, but he is kind of a fun player to start. And if they do decide to use him as a passer at all, or they start expanding his snaps so he's on the field more and maybe running, but you know, five, six times instead of four or three, uh, then this, we can, you know, seriously start talking about him as a starting tight end, fancy tight end. Uh, but right now you're looking at him as sort of a backup streamer type, uh, given, given the way he's being used in this offense. It's volatile is in fact the correct answer and assumption. My only hangups when I think about it are Alvin Kamara and this rib injury, because they didn't say, that Kamar's over the rib injury. They said he's dealing with a rib injury. Thus, if it continues to happen, well, is Taysom Hill still again used inside the red zone as a rusher? And also, Taysom Hill snaps and routes. Like, Taysom Hill isn't out there running four routes to tight end. Taysom Hill is out there because he was schemed four routes in a play designed for him. That's my only issue when I see his carries and snaps at quarterback. It's because he's supposed to get the ball on those routes, unlike if another tight end were to run were to run 20, 25 routes on 50 dropbacks. So it's a hangup when I think about tight end twos. But it is easier to argue for him and have PPR leagues where you don't receive bonuses for tight ends, whereas, you know, FFPC, all like that, where you get a point and a half. You get additional bonuses for tight ends catching receptions. It's easier to take the Evan Ingrams of the world, the Cole Comets of the world, in that case, over him. Sam, I want to come to you for the Chiefs' backfield, because what we saw was a muddled situation. Now, we do know that in the first quarter, before the Chiefs built their three-score lead in the second half, Clyde Edwards-Alaire out-touched Jarrett McKinnon 7-1. to Isaiah Pacheco was not involved to that point. In the second quarter, when the Chiefs had a 14-0 lead, CEH got two touches, McKinnon got three, and Pacheco got two. Only when they reached the fourth quarter with a 30-point lead did Pacheco handle 10 carries, to McKinnon's two, and CEH wasn't used at all because it was positive game script and a blowout by that point. What are you doing with the Chiefs' backfield moving forward? So I think Pacheco could be a sell high here. Now, it's a risky proposition to sell high on any player in the Chiefs' offense. Ronald Jones is for sure out of the picture. It looks like he can be dropped in every single league if if people still have him. I think Jarek McKinnon is who I'd potentially be buying low on. He played 62.5% of the team's third down snaps. So he looks to be sort of the passing downs guy and still played on about 32% of the team's red zone snaps as well. Didn't get nearly as many carries as CEH or Pacheco, but you you laid it out really well that Pacheco did not get involved in this game until it was such a big lead for the Chiefs. And it was probably 
you know, an extended preseason action type thing for Pacheco and in that they want to see what they have. But CEH played pretty well for a guy who a lot of people buried as being just a a terrible running back this offseason and, you know, had the nice nifty little uh, catch from Mahomes underhand throw near the goal line, which I think is huge. So CEH, I'm for sure holding right now. Pacheco, if you're desperate, can be a sell high and McKinnon, I'd buy low. This certainly helps me be higher on CEH Paulson. Not only did we not see him, right, handle carries inside the 10-yard line, but we saw him play two-third down snaps as a receiving back in the money zone. And that's what matters to me is that he was out there. doesn't matter if he gets carries as long as he's the running back they always use because they get bored inside the 10-yard line. That's seeing targets. So your thoughts both in the short term and long term about the Chiefs' backfield. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny to see him finish with seven carries in a game. I don't know that they won pretty handily. Uh, he came out and was really involved in the first drive. Looks like he had four carries, uh, had another four touches uh, in, the, in the rest of the first quarter. So he ended up with like eight or nine touches in the first quarter. Uh, wasn't that involved in the second quarter. And then as the game got out of hand, they basically sat him down. Um I think I think the, the question here is Pacheco versus McKinnon and who is the proper handcuff or injury upside play. And I think if if you do see a, an Edwards Hilaire injury, you're probably going to see some sort of committee between those two with McKinnon probably getting first crack because he was playing ahead of Edwards Hilaire late last year. He's a he's a better runner than people give him credit for. He's obviously a really good receiver. So um, I think Pacheco probably takes a back seat unless he really explodes in whatever touches he gets in that scenario. So I think that's the kind of the question that we're asking, because if you have Edwards Hilaire right now, you're, you know, might start him, you might not, just depending on the matchup, but uh, week one certainly encouraging. Uh, and as uh, Sam mentioned, I think Ronald Jones is sort of out of the picture, just kind of depth right now. If there's an injury, then maybe he'll be active on game day. It looks like he's going to be a, a healthy scratch if, if not. And although... I would take a package for Pacheco right now, Sam, if someone sees his 12 carries and overthinks it in my league. But also, there's a chance he just plays over McKinnon by outperforming him. Because we saw in those 12 carries, four went for five-plus yards. Like, he is a very explosive running back. And maybe that allows him to earn more opportunity down the stretch. That would be my only thing I'm monitoring here. I do think Pacheco is probably the long-term play if, you know, you've got some strong running backs already and can potentially wait for a second half breakout. I think Pacheco is the right move. But if you're looking for a spot start at running back right now, I would lean McKinnon. Everyone that overdrafted Ramondre Stevenson Paulson is now curious what happens since Ty Montgomery got moved to IR, expected to miss the next four games. We don't know who they're going to activate or call up from the practice squad in his stead maybe J.J. Taylor, maybe Pierre Strong. But overall, how do you view this Patriots backfield against the Steelers and long-term? Uh, I would, you know, I just want to throw in that McKinnon has averaged over five yards per carry for since coming to Kansas City. I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, so he, he does have some upside. Um, Tom Montgomery played 37%. If you look at our running back uh, by committee report, uh, 
on the website, which is really handy when I want to try to dig into these backfields. But Ty Montgomery played 37% of the snaps in week one. Uh, he only had five touches, but four targets. Um, so we know what his role was. He was kind of the James White wannabe in that offense. And the fact that he's out, I think they're not going to look for a third player to do that. I think they're just going to split that work between Harris and Stevenson. Uh, Harris isn't bad at, at pe- catching the ball. Uh, we've heard a lot about Stevenson this uh, preseason um, heading into the end of the year. We know he can run the ball. We know he can catch it. So I think it's a bump for both players and it does sort of open the door for Stevenson, especially to make some plays in the passing game and make some wild plays because he does have that ability to really get trucking up field, break a couple tackles and and maybe break one. Um, so I think, Bottom line, you're seeing a big bump in snaps for both players. I mean, you have 37% of the snaps to divvy up. It's 21 snaps, another 10 snaps for Harris, and another for 10 snaps for for Stevenson. They're going to do something with those snaps, and obviously these are high yield, uh, you know, snaps. I mean, you're looking for using them as a pass receiver. Obviously, point per reception leagues, uh, they benefit uh, even more in those leagues. So you know, having anytime you have your running backs running routes, it's good. Uh, so I, I would look at this as a boon for for Harris and for Stevenson, you know, almost equally. But Stevenson, I think, gets a bit more playing time than, uh, you know, probably gets a bigger bump in playing time than uh, than Harris does. Agree. And the fact Damian Harris ran 11 routes to Stevenson's four and as evidenced of last year's the preferred goal line back. That's why I'm still high on Harris. But then, Sam, we also have to ask how many touchdowns is a Matt Patricia offense really going to score at years in? So what are your thoughts on this backfield? I, I, I think I would probably sit both if I had better options. I mean, I'd, I'd for sure start Daryl Henderson or Jeff Wilson over both of these guys, two players we we've talked about already on the show. The offense just does not look great. And Miami's defense is, is solid, but the concerns about the Patriots offense this off season and them sort of switching to this Shanahan type running scheme it just did not really work. It sounds like Mac Jones is practicing, so he should play, which if if they had to change quarterbacks, that would be a, a massive downgrade, I think, as well. But if for some reason I have both of these guys on my roster, I would lean Harris. He he did get a little bit more work in the running, or excuse me, in the passing game, like you mentioned, got two of the three red zone snaps that the Patriots had in week one, but I, I, my hope is just that they filter this Ty Montgomery work to both of these guys and they don't bring in someone else to take a bunch of the workload, but it's the Patriots. And we know that they've always been a headache for uh, running back, excuse me, for fantasy purposes. For reference, Damian Harris is a low end RB two and Ramondre Stevenson is the RB 30 and Paulson's week two rankings. Are you moving on to Cordero Patterson, Paulson? Because everyone will have an opportunity to sell high if they choose to do so. Your words are crucial. You're telling them what to do. Are, what are you doing with Patterson after we saw 25 touches and 83% of the team's backfield touches, were, which were the highest he's accumulated in his time with the Falcons dating back to last year even? Yeah, this was this kind of warmed my heart because all offseason I was trying to figure out why Patterson was going so late in drafts. I mean, you could get him ninth, tenth round pretty easily. You could get him in every draft you wanted to in, in the eighth round, basically. And 
I sort of get it. And I think the fantasy community in, in on one side, uh, one hand is just ageist and they, it's just age discrimination against some of these older players. Uh, but Patterson was really good last year. Obviously had a breakout year, but he's 32 years old. So I think people are, you know, kind of worried about his durability. And I think if he sees this workload for very long, he may not hold up uh, for very long, but I think in the short term, you want to be starting him. Uh, Damian Williams, uh, went out with a rib injury, uh, but Patterson saw the first carry in this game, so he did get the, the quote-unquote start, and, or at least got the first touch uh, for running back. And they do have some holes at receiver, so he's going to see a lot of work in the uh, receiving game as well. Um, and Tyler, Tyler Algier was a healthy scratch, so he's not really a factor. That was the guy that I think the fantasy community was thinking was going to come in and take Patterson's workload. Uh, but he wasn't even active. Uh, so he may be active now because, you know, Damian Williams is might be sidelined. Um, but I think the uh, the Atlanta, I tweeted it out, the uh, Atlanta, I did a picture of the Atlanta um, depth chart. It was unofficial depth chart from their website. And Algier was listed as the eighth running back. And there was nobody <laughs> in the five, six spot. I don't even know what is going on there. But it doesn't bode well. Uh, they usually won't you know, won't do that to their starter. So obviously he's not the starter. Uh, Patterson, I'm just going to plug him in and just hope that he can stay healthy as long as possible. But, you know, he's not built for uh, 22 carries or whatever he had in this game. Um, 22 carries, three catches, 25 touches. I don't think he's going to hold up uh, for very long. Um, so it's not a bad idea if he's depth for you, because he might be. Uh, if you draft him as your RB4 or something, if you can get a nice haul, uh, I don't see him uh, lasting the entire season with this sort of workload, but I think in the short term, he's going to be a, a really good start. At least we did get confirmation that Damian Williams is the contingency back to roster there since he did have those two touches on seven snaps in the first drive and a half, and then Patterson took over from there. Tyler Algier, not only inactive, as you said, but also inactive behind Avery Williams, a fifth-round special teams running back, who we know will be active to play on that unit over him every single week. So Algier needs Williams, basically, to be injured in order to be active on Sundays. Thus, we are not high on him at all. Sam, what are you doing with Cordero Patterson, since this is potentially the highest selling point he'll have all year? I mean, I, I don't necessarily see it that way if if you think he's going his body's going to break down because he's a little bit older then sure this is this is an opportunity right for you to sell high but one of the I guess again big shockers with the Atlanta offense or, or I guess why Patterson was going so low is it's really just Pitts in London and then nobody else really and the, the question entering the season, I think, was, well, is the offense going to be even good enough to support a third player? And we saw against what's a I think is a decent Saints defense, them doing pretty well. I mean, they put up 20, 26 or 27 points. Avery Williams, I do think, is an interesting deep stash if the Falcons are really that soured on Algier because... Williams ran a route on 45.9% of routes, which is not an insignificant amount. Uh, Patterson only ran two more routes than him. So it, it's one of those things where a couple of things might need to happen, but someone to at least keep 
on your radar going forward? From one backfield to the next, I want to discuss the Jets running backs because what we saw was both Michael Carter and Brees Hall used heavily. Sam, we have a chart here for all those who join us again at 1 p.m. Eastern every Wednesday. Go ahead and dive into what you saw through the Jets backfield usage. Yeah, so when the Jets initially announced Flacco as the week one starter over Mike White, I was a little disappointed because White peppered the running backs with targets in the couple of games that he played last year. Turns out Joe Flacco just is going to do the exact same thing. He gave them, um, excuse me, 10 and 9 targets for Hall and Carter, respectively. The Jets had the second most high-value touches with 13 in week one for their running backs. So in the passing game, their numbers were pretty identical. What separates them and and what really stood out to me is Carter dominated the third down snap percentage, 70.6% to 23.5% for Hall. He also dominated in the red zone, commanding 61.5% of the red zone snaps to 38.5% for, uh, excuse me, for Brees Hall. So that sort of stuff leads me to believe that Carter is still the 1A in this offense, but maybe the timetable moves up for Brees Hall when a lot of people thought, you know, the reports just a week or two ago were that Hall was clearly behind Carter and, I think while Joe Flacco is starting, they both have some flex appeal, especially if they're going to be getting this many targets and opportunity, you know, high value opportunities as well. And that many touches or targets Paulson and a timeshare is enticing for, for Brees Hall. But as Sam said, an out snapping Hall 14 to four on third down, and also Michael Carter handling 65% of running back touches in this game, I think, Michael Carter's the player we should be very happy with if we got in rounds 10 through 12. Yeah, he's another one of these guys that, you know, was being drafted as an RB2 and is actually the RB1. And they did tell us, and they showed us in preseason that Carter was ahead of Hall. Uh, but a lot of us didn't believe him. Uh, but heading into the season here, we were in a pretty good, you know, pretty good situation with Carter, Daryl Henderson, uh, Patterson's another one. I'm sure there's a few more. Or maybe there's another more another one to discuss at some other point in the future. But the um, I think the situation here is Hall's sort of a hold. You're hoping that he can emerge. Uh, but what they like about Carter is that he uh, hits the hole faster. He's more decisive, and they're feeding him the ball for that reason. He's also a pretty good receiver. So I, I just don't think that they're going to be able to maintain 19 targets per game for these running backs. So I do expect these numbers to decline a little bit as they try to get the ball to Elijah Moore a little bit more. Um, but certainly Carter, it looks like a, a solid flex at this point. Are you trying to tell me Joe Flacco is not going to throw the ball 59 times? Is that what you're trying to tell all of us? Yeah. I mean, it was funny cause I did tweet out um, some numbers from his start last year and how, you know, he really jived with, uh, with more. Uh, and somebody responded that, oh, well, Flacco peppers running backs with targets too. He didn't in that game. Uh, obviously, Ray Rice, Baltimore was a big pass catcher out of the backfield for, for Flacco. So, yeah, you know, 59 pass attempts, but 
19 of them. I mean, what is that number? It's like uh, a third of his targets are going to the running backs. That seems unsustainable. It was the Broncos still who led the league in rate of targets to running backs and Javante Williams soaked up 12 out of nowhere. I also want to talk about, Sam, the Bills' backfield because what we saw was essentially a timeshare with Zach Moss handling 12 touches to Devin Singletary's 10 on Thursday night in the regular season opener. What do you have for us for among the Bills players? So this was uh, a mess and a shock to everyone as we were watching the game. You know, Singletary comes out, he's the lead back, and then the next guy that they bring in is Zach Moss, and he's getting peppered with targets, had six on the game for a 19.4%. Target share caught all six of them, but he only ran a route on 37% of the team's dropbacks and Singletary was actually up at 47 and a half percent. Then they bring out James Cook and he fumbles on the first play that he's in uh, or it gets a carry at least. And it seems like he's sort of in the doghouse for the rest of the game, only plays three snaps total and was having a conversation with some people afterwards about who this is best for. And with Moss fumbling as well, I think, Singletary is, you know, sort of the best guy for this offense going forward. And it's, it's something where I don't think you can really trust Zach Moss's performance um, from this past week to really carry forward. The bills looked like they were trying to get the ball out of Allen's hands really quickly in this game. His average depth of target was, was quite low for a Josh Allen offense and, I think that that passing game work probably goes to James Cook in the future, but it's not something that's going to be immediate. James Cook, more of a hold for me. Devin Singletary, I think you can start because he is a a great running back and one of the best offenses in the league. And Zach Moss is possibly a a sell high if if you can point to the targets, uh, point someone else to the targets and, and work it out that way. I know you took to the Discord, Paulson, following Thursday night for your In the Box channel, which you put stats in throughout the weekend. What did you take away from this Bills backfield performance? I didn't write about it a whole lot. Uh, I think the interesting thing here was that, I mean, the thing that kind of threw everybody was that James Cook fumbled and uh, basically didn't doesn't play anymore in the game. Uh, so I don't know if Zach Moss took those snaps from Cook. Uh, if there was a plan for Cook and he basically got benched, he scored negative 1.8 points per in PPR formats. Um, but I think you know, looking long term here, we knew that I mean Mas- Moss was playing uh, more than we kind of thought even before that happened, and uh, it does look like he's the primary backup right now. If there is an injury to Singletary, you're probably going to see Moss in a pretty big role. Uh, so I think you could you know, use that as a selling point too, but I don't know like too many. I mean, I think Moss is more of a waiver wire player right now than somebody that you're trying to trade. Um, And whether or not you want to pick him up is kind of based on your running back depth. But I think he is a injury upside play when we kind of thought that cook was, Uh, and we we wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked if cook stays in the doghouse for a while. And they seem to like what Moss is bringing, bringing them right now. And they said that in the preseason that he was uh, doing well in camp and was kind of, uh, taking a next step from uh, kind of a disappointing uh, season last year. So uh, that's how I look at it. I mean, I think he could be a, 
a weekly flex in a good situation. Uh, and certainly if Singletary were to miss time, then Moss becomes a RB2, RB3 type. I will just note that Singletary was drafted in shallower leagues because he averaged 18 touches and 86% of Buffalo's backfield touches in his last seven games last year. So Thursday night and Moss handling 52% and Singletary dipping to 43%. It's not the fact that Singletary's overall backfield touches got cut in half. It's the fact that at least Thursday night was a true timeshare. And that's why I will be monitoring this situation closely. Moving on to wide receivers. Everyone is curious, Sam, takeaways from the Titans, since they essentially used four players, but we saw two people among their group stand out in particular. What are your thoughts on Titans wide receivers moving forward? So I had been off Robert Woods all off season. I will continue to be. He led the team in routes, but only had two targets. Meanwhile, their rookie wide receiver who they drafted to replace A.J. Brown. He only ran a route on 38% of dropbacks, which isn't great, but still led the team in air yard share with 34.1% of the team's air yards. Had five targets in the game as well as an end zone target. The surprise here, I think, is Kyle Phillips, who led all receivers in targets with nine. That's good for a 29% target share. So Kyle Phillips, certainly someone to pick up off the waiver wire if he is out there and you're struggling for some wide receiver depth. But Burks, I think right now is a hold and has a great ceiling moving forward. And Robert Wood, something, someone that I, I will continue to be out on the rest of the year. Paulson, your takeaways, how are you treating this wide receiver group in the short term, knowing people have Robert Woods trail on Burks and will run to waiver wires to pick up Kyle Phillips, who I wrote about in depth at my waiver wire column on four for four. Yeah. And I would also just, I mean, we're not, we're probably going to talk about tight ends here in a minute, but Austin Hooper ran the second most routes after Robert Woods, both players, both Woods and Hooper had, uh, disappointing games given their preseason buzz at least in camp and I wonder you know if Woods is going to take a few weeks to kind of get fully healthy from that knee I know he's not I don't think he's wearing a brace and has been you know practicing fully uh but the fact that he didn't do anything in this game really of note uh is a little bit alarming uh I would uh I'm not out on him I would just you know I don't think anybody uh, was starting him this week or wanted to start I mean I'm sure somebody was starting him but (laughs) probably don't want to start him now maybe just bench him and kind of sit and wait. Cause I do think that he's a more proven receiver than Burks. He's the most pr- proven receiver on this team. So I'd like to see a, and not panic after one week and uh, you know, sort of see him in a two to three week span to see if things start to improve. Uh, I do think Phillips in uh, PPR formats has some appeal. Uh, there was a great buzz about him in camp and for him to come out and have a pretty good game in week one, uh, kind of supported that. And I think his snaps and stuff are only going to rise. Uh, rise. He ran the second most routes amongst receivers uh, tied with Nick Westbrook. So, and then Burks is way down at 14, but did, did draw some targets in those, in that, in that snap share. So he's probably the one with the most upside Burks. Uh, Phillips is kind of reminds me of a Cole Beasley type. It's going to get you, maybe get you 10 points in a PPR format and a you know, spot start, but is not going to light the world on fire. Uh, so he'll probably be ranked wide receiver four, wide receiver five, you know, with a pretty good target share, but not a lot of upside. Uh, and I would say that from a, from a season long standpoint, Burke still has the most upside, 
but I am sort of monitoring uh, Woods. I don't think I would cut him at this point. Pro Football Focus's Nathan Yonke also noted that Kyle Phillips registered the league's highest target per route run rate, 43% of any receiver to run at least 20 routes on Sunday. We also know that Robert Woods stayed in to run block on 16 of his 30 passing snaps, whereas Kyle Phillips only ran blocked on six of his 25 passing snaps. So when Kyle Phillips is out there, he's essentially running routes. Again, my mother would be discouraged by how much fab I put on Kyle Phillips in FFPC leagues. It is terrifying, but I'm very high on him. People will also have, Hoppin, a choice between Curtis Samuel and Jahan Dotson across waiver wires this week. Dotson, of course, only five targets, but two touchdowns. And like we saw in the preseason, the second most routes on the team, Curtis Samuel, we didn't know that leading the team in target share was in his range of outcomes. But to also see four carries, encouraging, in my opinion, for a high weekly floor. Your thoughts on this offense? So I think the be- you don't really see this in the target share um, between Samuel, Dotson, and McLaurin. They combined for 20 targets. But this wide receiver group is going to be very concentrated, I think, between those three. All three of them ran a route on more than 75% of the team's dropbacks. No other wide receiver was above 10%. So when they are rolling three wide receiver sets out, it is those three guys and those three guys only. Curtis Samuel, clearly the possession guy, had a one-yard average depth of target on 11 air yards and 11 targets. Dotson with the two end zone targets as well, and McLaurin with one end zone target not to sort of forget about him uh, because I do think he still is the wide receiver one and can play sort of multiple roles in that offense, whether it's inside or at, uh, excuse me, in the slot or outside Dotson though, seems like he might be more of a deep threat as well. Had a 13.6 yard average depth of target. So to decide between Samuel and Dotson is I think, it's it's difficult for sure, but people were burying them because of Carson Wentz. It looks like that might not be the case, especially if it is this concentrated. If you're looking for PPR upside, I think Samuel is the way to go. But Dotson for sure looks like the real deal and has an opportunity to secure a ton more touchdowns. And it's only one week, Paulson, but the commanders did average the eighth highest pass play rate in neutral game script. So we do think there's a chance that all three can return value wherever they return value in rankings. But that's why I want to come to you because now you could also argue Terry McLaurin has the most competition of his entire career. So where do you stand on these three receivers in the short term, knowing people have choices to make in starting them? Well, I think that the, you know, looking at the targets from one week, can be mis- it's it's valuable on one one hand, but it's also can be really misleading because I don't think you're going to see Curtis Samuel with double digit targets with any sort of consistency, or even eight plus with any sort of consistency. So I think these targets will even out. I think McLaurin will end up getting his share, and uh, Dotson will get hit. I still value Dotson over uh, Samuel because of just the. I mean, the snaps aren't going to be a big difference based on what Sam is saying. And I'm looking at the routes, routes run, and they're very close between Dotson and Samuel. I mean, I think Dotson ran four more routes than Samuel did. So there's a lot of three receiver sets, and Samuel's going to be on the field a lot. And they do hand on the ball, too. He got four carries for 17 yards. 
uh, sort of that Carolina uh, production that we were used to seeing from him. So uh, Curtis Samuel is a player I liked. I liked him, especially at his value uh, heading into the, you know, get him basically for free at the end of your draft. Uh, and he's a player that we can certainly start looking at as a starter, uh, especially in PPR formats. Depth of target's not there. Uh, he does have huge speed. They could run him down if they wanted to take a couple deep shots. Um, but I do think that Dotson is ahead of him in terms of the pecking order and likely will finish with more targets than him at the end of the season uh, if both players stay healthy. And I think Samuel, you have the injury concern a little bit more than you do with the, the rookie Dotson. So uh, I'm still in on McLaurin. Uh, he did sort of have a the touchdown, which saved his fantasy day, uh, two for 58 and a touchdown on four targets. A little bit alarming, uh, but not uh, red, you know, red siren type alarm uh, with, with with McLaurin. Uh, so I, I would go Dotson over Samuel, but Samuel's value is obviously higher than it was a week ago. When everyone tuned in to Monday Night Football, Sam, they not only saw Geno Smith light the world on fire somehow, but also Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy share a sixteen and a half percent target share. Although it was Judy who got there with over 100 yards and a touchdown, due in part to his 71 yards after the catch and big touchdown before the half. So, what are your thoughts on the Broncos receivers moving forward? I I put this in the show notes just to tell all of the Broncos receiver managers for those two players is to relax. Like I think the the Broncos certainly ran a lot more two tight end sets than people were expecting for sure. But both Sutton and Judy ran a route on over 90% of the team's dropbacks. Sutton seems like the downfield guy with the 17.3-yard average depth of target. Judy down at 10.4, which is is pretty solid as well. But I don't think, you know, similar to the Jets situation we were just talking about, I don't think Russell Wilson specifically is going to keep peppering these running backs with so many targets in in these games, you know, people were wondering where Sutton was you know, partway through the second quarter and then started to get targeted a little bit more. But Sutton did get two of the five end zone targets for the Broncos. So holding these guys, starting them for sure, and am encouraged by the usage despite the outcomes that they had on Monday night. There's also some unwarranted concern about Albert O after Monday night, Paul said, how are you handling Albert O moving forward? That's interesting. You said that, cause I was actually sort of encouraged, uh, by the fundamentals, um, you know, looking at his, his, uh, routes, uh, he was up there in terms of at his position, but 35 routes, I think that was the eighth most amongst tight ends, uh, this week. Um, he was the third most routes behind, Sutton uh, and Judy. Uh, I think the alarming thing for me was I had I had to like double check Sam's uh, air yards numbers, but his like average area or his total air yards is like four. So you know, on six targets, that is incredibly low, especially when, for you know, when you ahead. can get full, when you can get fullback Andrew Beck involved downfield instead. You got to do it. I mean, Albert O has four point four nine speed, and we're not even targeting him once down the seam. Uh, it's questionable. Uh, so I, I, I was actually fairly encouraged by it. I have him in a couple of leagues and I started him. And, you know, obviously the numbers aren't great, but five for 33, but getting six targets is good. Uh, and the routes were good. So I think the fundamentals 
are fairly strong for Albert. Oh, we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, they want to get Greg Dolchich back uh, and get him involved, but that's going to be a few weeks. So I think Albert O has an opportunity here. He did catch a long pass in the preseason, so they know he can do it. I just uh, I would like to see more air yards for him and more downfield targets for him. Another tight end that will close out your charts with Sam that everyone seems to be concerned about is David Njoku, and maybe that's because Kevin Stefanski came out on Monday and complimented Njoku's pass blocking, which is never a good thing for fantasy when you are the best pass blocking tight end on your own team. What are your takeaways for Njoku in this Browns tight ends room? That is shocking to hear. I, I did miss that, but I say it's shocking because Njoku was still running a route on 72% of the team's dropbacks nearly doubled the amount of routes that Harrison Bryant ran, but Bryant with four targets on the game with Njoku only earning one. So I think if you're in a tight end streaming situation, I would still lean Njoku. I think he still has the slightly higher ceiling, but I mean, in, in a DFS dart throw type of situation, I don't, you know, you could probably play either of these guys it's it's good that it's just these two guys uh and not austin hooper as well like it was last year but i don't think there's as much concern for injoku right now if this continues where he's not getting targeted than it is but he's on the field a lot it seems like and that's really key for me especially at the tight end position and someone who's a little further down the rankings any takeaways before we move on and close the show, Paulson, from Njoku, maybe Donovan Peoples-Jones, who did have a 30-plus percent target share, although we question the accuracy of those targets from Jacoby Brissett. Any other thoughts for the Browns? Yeah, there's some weird uh, you know, players getting huge target shares in week one. Uh, and that's, I, I guess that's typically the case. But this is, you know, we got Robbie Anderson on the other side with eight targets, DJ Moore with just six, uh, Peoples-Jones with 11, uh, Mari Cooper with six. So just some, some weird... Some weird numbers. I wouldn't read too much into it, and this becomes a, a two to three week sort of stretch. Uh, with regard to Njoku and and Bryant, uh, you know, you mentioned Albert O, and I feel better about his breakout season right now than I do Njoku's, just given the way this this sort of you know shaped out. And I think that Brissett is actually tight end friendly, uh, but he might be tight end friendly to Bryant for some reason, uh, and not looking Njoku's way. Another great athlete, which should be used downfield, Njoku. Uh, and right now it does not seem like Njoku breakout season is on. I want to finish with some quick-hitting topics since it is our job to set people up for success as early as Wednesday, even though there's a lot to shake out, which is why start sits answering those are just impossible on a Wednesday. So let's say, Paulson, Ken Walker returns. It looks like he's in line two in week two. How are you handling this backfield and Rashad Penny in particular? Well, I still think Penny will be the lead back. Uh, it does uh, add a layer of uncertainty when projecting, you know, not knowing how they will treat Walker uh, with respect to Penny. But Penny, you know, was so good at the end of last year. Uh, I think Bob Condata, the beat writer, said that he's the far and away clear RB1, would expect 20 touches per game for him. I don't think we'll see necessarily that, but it does seem like he's well ahead of Walker right now, especially Walker coming off of an injury, rookie. He can't just jump right in. He's missed some time. So we'll see what sort of workload he has in week two if he's able to play. I think in the short term, September, 
you know, middle October, uh, Penny's still a relatively safe leader of that backfield. T. Higgins is still in the concussion protocol. We are not sure if he's going to clear in time for kickoff. Where would you value Tyler Boyd, Sam, if T. Higgins is not available? I think he, <clears throat> excuse me, probably moves up to high end wide, wide receiver three territory right now. The Bengals put, had it ran an absurd amount of rates in their game this last week. That's obviously inflated by the overtime, but I, I think, I mean, they still really like Tyler Boyd. <clears throat> and if, if he isn't, excuse me, if T Higgins is not playing, then I'd be starting Tyler Boyd as a, a solid flex option. Tyler Boyd Paulson right now is your wide receiver 30. Does he move up or is that under the assumption that T Higgins may not play? That's under the assumption that Higgins may not play. And I did see okay. a, our, fan, our fantasy life app. Uh, I did see a, which does a great job of notifying us on uh, breaking news. Um, definitely go and download that uh, fantasy life app. Uh, did say Company that man. Higgins. Yeah. Higgins did. Uh, it's also just a good product. Uh, Higgins um, did pass some, some things that he needed to pass and is making some progress. So he might be able to play, but I, I, I think boy at 30 is reasonable. Uh, I would probably have him a little higher. He did have four for 33 and a touchdown, but he saw seven targets. Um, Mike Thomas saw five targets and only caught one. And then I think the, the other player that benefits is uh, Hayden Hurst, eight targets, uh, five for 46. Actually looked really good. He had a, a really good catch on the sideline where uh, Burrow overthrew him and he was able to get his feet down. Uh, he was wide open and Burrow like threw a 10 feet high and he got his uh, toe tapped and, and got it in. So uh, he's a very interesting player. I think even long-term, even as the four number four option in his offense, uh, they are going to throw the ball quite a bit and Burrow's a pretty good quarterback. So uh, Hayden Hurst is somebody that's probably on some waiver wires, uh, interesting streamer, especially this week if Higgins is at all limited. Reminder, Tyler Boyd, 28% target share in the first month of the season when T. Higgins was banged up last year as well. Sam, George Pickens ran around on 91% of dropbacks in week one, but still finished third in targets behind Deontay Johnson and Chase Claypool, not to mention Pat Fryermuth being involved for 10 targets as well. How are you handling George Pickens in the short term since anyone can just say hold him? Well, I guess I can't say hold him then. Um, <clears throat> I... I I, now that you said I can't say hold him, I I'm struggling to figure out the answer here. No, it, the, it's just that everyone, it's it's everyone of course wants to hold the rookie they drafted in yeah. high draft capital. That's the automatic assumption. Uh, the question is, people in deeper leagues will have issues or will have question marks about whether to start him or not. And I don't think he's startable personally. I don't think so either. The fact that he did right finish now. behind. Claypool, right. The fact that he finished behind Claypool and targets. Claypool, interesting enough, also had six carries in the game. So it sort of seems like the the Steelers are trying to turn him into Debo Samuel uh, for better or worse. So the the usage, again, being on the field is encouraging. If, if it was down to 35%, I'd be much more concerned. But he is on the field. I do think the sort of success that the Steelers had on offense this past week is a little bit of an aberration. I mean, their their box score looks a little better because they were set up with some solid field position on the interceptions they had on Joe Burrow. 
So, yes, he is a sold a, a hold. I'm not starting him really anywhere right now and think there are better options out there. And finally, Paulson, Chris Godwin, week to week moving forward. How are you approaching these wide receivers in the short term, thinking that Godwin will miss at least a couple games? Uh, Mike Evans is like a must must start, obviously, wide mm-hmm. receiver one. I think Julio is the number two option there right now until Gage is able to get it going. Uh, Julio has it going right now with with Tom Brady. And, uh, you know, every all the video I saw of him in practice, he looked like he looked fast. And I guess he was the fastest clocked player at Bucks practice. I also wanted to mention Chase Claypool had the highest miles per hour tracked last week on his 12 yard rush which I thought was interesting. Uh, you know, as Sam mentioned, uh, the six carries adds a little bit of value uh, to him as well. Um, yeah, so I would, I, I think Julio is definitely startable right now. He's a good player as long as he's healthy uh, and hopefully he doesn't uh, injure his hamstring anytime soon. Leonard Fournette also 75% of backfield touches, 21 carries to Rashad White's six carries. And those six carries came in the fourth quarter when the game was already out of hand. Sam, tell everyone what they can go ahead. I just want to mention Rashad White, though. We know he's the backup there. We, we, you know, there might've been some Giovanni Bernard is the backup. You definitely want, if White's available on the waiver wire, pick him up and and stash him. Absolutely. He is ranked in the contingency top 10 that I keep in the waiver wire column and shuffle weekly based on usage. Accordingly, he's very high on that list. Just a hint. Sam, what else do you have for everyone for the rest of the week? Like I mentioned earlier, Hop into Conclusions will be coming out later today. I've got a, a buy low, sell high article coming out tomorrow. And then just more and more charts on the Twitter feed all week long. We've got a plenty of tools for you to use as well that I, I believe all of the uh, data kinks have been worked out to this point. So check out the player stat explorer, the team stat explorer on 444. Those Damn data providers. Paulson, what do you have for everyone as we close out the week? Well, I'm writing a sneaky starts today, trying to figure out the Taysom Hill conundrum uh, on the website. Uh, and tomorrow I'll be doing an hour, probably an hour chat in uh, AMA and Discord. And I really, if you're a 44 subscriber and you're not in our Discord, you're missing out. That's where I yes. post uh, my thinking inside the box with all those stats there. There's a ton of interaction with the other Four for four subscribers who will help you if the analysts uh, don't, and sometimes the analysts will, ch- you know, check in and help as well. We can't a- answer everybody's specific questions, but during the AMA, I try to. Uh, and then on uh, Friday, we'll do it back with uh, Anthony Stalter for the uh, storylines pod on Friday morning. Waverar Calm also up on the site that I write to be used throughout the entire week with notes for however deep or shallow your league may be. Paulson, as he said, will be back on Friday. I'll be back with the Fantasy Recap Show with our friends at Underdog Sunday night live and Monday morning in your podcast feeds. But until then, just remember, be a little bit kinder than what's required. We'll see you then.